0: welcome to another episode of the Dave's Dispatch Podcast. I'm David Dennison and I'm very glad you decided to join us this week. On the show, we are going to be talking about Donald Trump and Joe Biden. We're going to be talking about the recent missile strikes in Yemen, and we're going to be talking about banning books. If you are new to this experience, just a few notes. First of all, I know that the audio isn't great, and I'm working on that. I know it sounds kind of tinny, and like I'm recording this in a cave, probably because the part of my house in which I am recording this is a cave. I also want to tell you a little bit about what the Dave's Dispatch podcast is and what it isn't. Really, all we're doing here is making an accessibility feature for folks who didn't want to sit down and read the newsletter. If you don't like reading, if you don't have time to sit down and read a newsletter, if you would rather go for a walk while you listen to your weekly politics, this is for you. It's basically just going to be me reading the entries from this past week in the newsletter and possibly offering some updates or editorializing as needed. What it is not going to be yet is a totally new and totally different experience. So if you have already read this week's entries in the newsletter, You don't really need to listen to this. Of course, if you just enjoy hearing my voice, you're perfectly welcome to stick around. Without further ado, we're going to talk a little bit about the Biden administration's electoral strategy for beating Donald Trump and what I think some of its pitfalls are. Here we go. Am I missing something? Or is the Democrats' electoral strategy to just sit back and hope that Donald Trump goes to jail. Don't get me wrong, if he actually goes to jail, this will probably work. But if he doesn't, Dems are going to spend election day feeling like the hockey team that showed up without skates because they were counting on their opponent's bus to crash. I'm not in a position to handicap whether or not Trump is actually going to do time. I just have no idea. I don't know enough about the law and I haven't followed his various trials with any real care or interest. My only thought here is that for all its bluster to the contrary, the U.S. is actually a deeply unequal country, one in which powerful people regularly get away with the crimes they do, whereas poor people get steamrolled by a criminal justice system that isn't designed to look out for their rights or interests. Trump, specifically, is something like the poster child for people who do not go to jail, no matter what they do. There was not a single white-collar prosecution even attempted against the people who destroyed the economy back in 2008. Remember when that happened? And nobody went to jail? Those guys committed obvious crimes, and the Obama Justice Department's calculation was that It wasn't worth the potential disruption to the markets that would come from locking the heads of powerful investment banks behind bars. You see a similar logic in response to Trump's various criminal probes, the thinking being that aggressively prosecuting Trump is risky, because as a political figure, his trials will seem too political. That weird protective tautology is the reason we have this two-tiered justice system, and it's as frustrating as it is kind of understandable. Obviously, this isn't something prosecutors concern themselves with when deciding how to charge John Q. Purse Snatcher. If you have no station in society, society isn't materially affected in the event you're removed from it. If you run a big bank, or you're super famous, or you were president once, your absence will be noticed. By the way, I said this was understandable. I didn't say it was right or that it was how it was supposed to work. It's neither. But back to the politics. I would feel quite a bit more comfortable if Democrats were adopting a more proactive strategy for winning over voters rather than just hoping the courts will do their homework for them. Particularly because this strategy isn't just risky. It's bad politics. A just-released CBS poll shows Biden trailing all three major GOP candidates. Of the three, Nikki Haley does best against him, but honestly, who cares? According to the same polling, Trump is basically lapping Haley and DeSantis, and Republican primary voters appear barely to care that the primary is happening at all. So barring something wild, like Trump actually getting fitted for an orange jumpsuit, he's going to be the nominee. And while Biden certainly has time to turn things around, he's only losing by a few points and is within the poll's margin of error against Trump, it's just not clear to me what cards he might have up his sleeve. And since it's Biden's Justice Department leading the prosecutions of Trump, The perception that this is all about the president trying to lock up his most dangerous rival is too powerful for Republicans to ignore. Even if that's not really what's happening, and I don't think it is, how are they supposed to agree that this is all above board and that Trump's status as a major party candidate is totally incidental to his criminal headaches? What incentive does the GOP have to be fair-minded about this, when it's entirely to their political disadvantage to do so. The right-wing worldview, at least among those most inclined to support a guy like Trump, is built on victimization by an almighty government. There isn't much a government can do to an individual that's more consequential than locking them up. And while I realize that Joe Biden isn't the one specifically trying to do this, his messaging outfit has not done anywhere near enough to combat the impression that he's hoping for the system to get gamed in his favor. When the Colorado Supreme Court removed Trump from the 2024 ballot, Biden missed a huge opportunity in failing to loudly denounce the decision, or at least letting it be known that he wasn't supportive. SCOTUS, is going to reverse it anyway, so whatever the merits of the case, Trump's name is staying on that ballot. Biden could have said, fuck it, bring him on, I'll take him down myself. But he didn't. And that only gives voters the impression that he's desperate not to have to go head to head. At best, the Biden team is counting on fear of Trump being as potent this time around as it was in 2020. That, too, is risky. I can't find the link just now, but when Ben Shapiro went on Bill Maher's show, he said something significant. This was a while ago. He said that, in his view, voting for Trump a second time wasn't a big risk, because Trump had already shown that he could govern a country without burning it to the ground. So, well, yeah, he was a little off the rails. A second term would be survivable and better than a Democrat. Maybe you're saying to yourself, uh, the country didn't burn to the ground the last time? I feel that. But remember that left and right voters don't just have different values and priorities. They live in different informational universes. This isn't about misinformation or disinformation, terms that have become so politically loaded and abstracted as to be functionally useless. This is about whether you're engaged with what MSNBC thinks is important or what Fox News does. Because it can't be both if you watch just one. They're having different conversations about different things. And plenty of conservative voters, even the ones who don't like Trump, will happily vote for him over Joe Biden as the lesser of two evils. There are other conditions in this cycle that make things highly precarious for Democrats. Voters believe that the economy is bad, even though it isn't. They think crime is skyrocketing, which it is not. And they think there's a major crisis at the southern border, which... Okay, they're actually right on that one. And then there's Gaza. Elections are, in a structural sense, easier for Republicans. They have a consistent demographic that votes regularly, and it's been the same ballgame for them since at least Reagan... Democrats have a harder time because their coalition is so varied. If Dems piss off even one of the groups under their tent, they're in big trouble because they need everyone to show up. Gen Z, more than half of whom are above voting age now, are far more skeptical of U.S. support for Israel and extremely frustrated at Biden's enabling of Israel's prosecution of the Gaza War. This issue alone be enough to sink it for the blue team. The point of all this is that the Biden camp needs a plan that presents a positive vision for the country, a positive framing of his presidency thus far, which shouldn't be too hard because he's actually done a decent job. And they need a plan that assumes that Trump will be very much in the mix and not, as perhaps he should be, trading cigarettes for protection in the yard. Tomorrow, we head off to the races. Iowa this week, New Hampshire next week, and so on. And while it's looking like a pretty stable contest at this point, anything could happen. Election Eve predictions have a habit of becoming famous last words for political commentators, and I don't want to fall into that trap. But if you're a Democrat, you should be very, very worried right now, and very skeptical of any DNC hack. Who tries to tell you it's all gravy? The Democratic Party hates messy primaries. Up until now, their key prerogative has been trying to avoid serious Democratic challengers by presenting Joe Biden as fit as a fiddle and ready for anything. Depending how long Trump's challengers can hang in there, we could have a chance to test their reassurances in as little as a few weeks. I guess we'll see. We're going to take a short break here. If you like what you've heard so far, please do me a favor and hop on over to Substack so that you can subscribe to my newsletter, Dave's Dispatch. It's available at denisonwrites.substack.com. That's Denison with two Ns, and that's rights like to write down your grocery list. Now, before we move into this next segment, which is about the recent bombing campaign against the Puthi rebel group in Yemen, I just want to offer a little bit of preface. I got into a spat on Twitter this week because I didn't agree with this person who was yelling at me about what the definition of the word war is. At several points during this next segment, I'm going to refer to what the Biden administration is now doing in Yemen as a war. Now, I understand that not everybody agrees that that's what we should call it, but that's also kind of the point of the next segment that the word war is a loaded term, and if you use it, there are certain implications, like that you're supposed to have Congress be the party that decides we're going to go to war and not the President of the United States. In my view, when you are launching missiles at a different country, that's war. And to use a counterfactual, I want you to imagine, because a lot of people think, well, the Houthis aren't Yemen, they're a rebel group, they're a terrorist group, in fact, so... We can bomb them. That doesn't count as bombing a different country. Okay, let's run a counterfactual here. Imagine that there were some kind of extremist group in, for example, South Carolina that declared themselves to be at war with the United States government. Then imagine that that rebel group in a compound somewhere in South Carolina began attacking Iran. Maybe they were doing cyber attacks. Maybe they were sending people over to Iran to go blow themselves up or shoot up crowded markets, whatever it is. Then imagine that Iran flew airplanes over to South Carolina and bombed this compound. Are you really telling me that people in New York and people in Dallas and people in Sacramento would not consider that an act of war against the United States perpetrated by Iran? And the answer is, of course, Everyone in the United States would feel that it was an act of war. So, we can haggle over semantics and we can play these word games in the Western press, but the reality is, for people in Yemen who are not stupid, trust me, I have been there and I have met many of them, they are experiencing this as a war. They are experiencing this as the United States having attacked their country even if the part of their country that the United States attacked isn't a part that the officially recognized Yemeni government controls. So, that's my preface without further blabbering on my part. We're going to go ahead and move into this next segment. I know it's passe to mention this, but it is actually supposed to be Congress and not the President that decides when the United States goes to war. And that's actually an important thing. If you missed it, and golly, you could be forgiven for missing it, the U.S. and U.K. launched a series of attacks on Houthi encampments in Yemen. Which is to say, we, Americans and Brits, have just launched yet another war in yet another Middle Eastern country. And I don't remember anyone asking me if I was okay with that. Really, really quick background about what's happening. The Houthis are a Shia group, closely allied with Iran, who control between a quarter and a third of Yemen, a country that has been in a state of civil war for some years. The Houthis don't like the Yemeni government's closeness with Saudi Arabia, a majority Sunni country, and the fight has become a proxy war between the region's biggest players, Iran and Saudi Arabia. As a response to Israel's bombing of Gaza, The Houthis, who are concentrated along the country's western coastline, have begun attacking Israeli vessels in Red Sea shipping lanes in the hopes of economically pressuring Israel to relent. The Red Sea forms a choke point near the southwest corner of Yemen known as Bab al-Mandab. Any ship that wants to get from the Indian Ocean or the western Pacific into the Mediterranean or Atlantic has to pass through this choke point on their way to the Suez Canal unless they want to go all the way around the Cape of Good Hope. Bab mandab is tiny, and ships cannot avoid it, so it's very easy for land-based fighters to target the area. The ships are, if not quite sitting ducks, at least slow-moving ducks that are in a predictable and highly visible location. It is this practice, these attacks, that the U.S. and U.K. are hoping to stop by bombing Houthi targets on the ground in Yemen. And the Biden administration can justify its quick decision to do this by claiming that the Houthis are a terrorist group. Despite being around since the 90s, they were so designated by the US State Department in 2021. Then they were off the list for a while, now they're about to go back on. And in fact, since this piece was published, they are officially redesignated as a terrorist group by the US State Department. So, no problem. I guess if they aren't really Yemen, then we're not really bombing Yemen, or something. I don't really want to get into the merits of this. Having their ships in Bab al-Mandab attacked is obviously bad for Israel, and it's in their interest to do whatever they can to stop it. If you're a supporter of Israel, you're probably okay with our taking their side on this. If you aren't, or if you just don't want to see U.S. involvement in the Middle East ramp up, You'd probably rather we left it alone. I will say, though, that it's an act of definition stretching to describe what the Houthis are doing right now as terrorism. That word gets messed with a lot. American government types often use it to mean people we don't like doing any kind of violence. But the word has a meaning, and it should matter that we preserve it. The October 7th attack on Israel that began the current conflict in Gaza was plainly an act of terrorism. Targeting civilians in order to frighten other civilians into doing something, like leaving their country, is about as textbook as terrorism gets. Targeting enemy shipping lines, even targeting non-military crafts, as anyone who's ever seen a World War II movie knows, is a part of war. It's horrible and it's ugly but war is horrible and ugly and Israel itself made crystal clear that what they're doing in Gaza is making war. Once you get into one of those you don't always get to control where it goes. A quick aside here. I'm on shaky ground invoking what is and is not normal in war. I've never been in the military. I'm not an expert on foreign policy. If you're curious The 4th Geneva Convention, which was drafted after World War II was over, attempts to lay out ground rules for attacking merchant vessels. This is so far outside of my area of expertise that I hesitate even to discuss it, but as to the question of whether what the Houthis are doing is a war crime, the answer would seem to be, it depends. Ships under flags of neutral-to-the-war countries may not be attacked but may potentially be boarded And their cargo confiscated if it can be determined that said cargo is intended for the enemy. Of course, the Geneva Convention applies only to state actors, so the question is academic as it pertains to the Houthis anyway. Besides all that, as far as Uncle Sam is concerned, and to paraphrase Captain Barbosa, the Geneva Convention is more what you'd call guidelines than actual rules. These distinctions and definitions all matter, though. Because if all the Biden administration is doing is attacking terrorists, then that's regular order. That's just an extension of what's been our foreign policy stance for more than 20 years. We kill terrorists. But if the Houthis aren't engaging in terrorism, but simply defending an ally by attacking their enemy, then our bombing of their encampments represents an entrance into what our ally has already said is a war. The absolutely massive protests that have broken out in Sana'a, Yemen's capital, make pretty clear how Yemenis feel about this. And make pretty clear that the semantic nuances at play in the Western press aren't convincing them that this is anything other than a foreign power attacking their country. Of course, that's when the Western press acknowledges that this is happening at all. The reason American presidents since the end of World War II have always used workarounds to avoid asking Congress to declare war is that getting Congress to do that is very hard. Which is kind of the point. Wars are supposed to be hard to get into. There is supposed to be a high bar to clear before entering them. And we are only supposed to get into conflicts when a consensus of Americans thinks we should. I know. That's naive. It doesn't reflect real-world conditions. In the real world, American presidents must be empowered to kill poor people at a moment's notice, any time they want, and cannot be burdened with such niceties as morality, public opinion, or the U.S. Constitution. God, grow up, Dave. It's probably fine. The Houthis can't do much. At least not to us. Not at home. So for most Americans, this isn't going to matter. That is, unless you're getting on a bus 10 years from now and the guy sitting next to you has a pipe bomb in his backpack because we killed his dad when he was 11. Then it might matter. Blow on your dice, folks. I understand why we have a military, and I understand that there are times when we need to use it. I also understand that targeting non-combatants at sea isn't something we want anyone doing. But now, it's the Biden administration's turn not to be naive. Trying to take out enemy supply lines, even those not under military escort, is a tactic as old as war itself. Using loaded terminology to describe it might be a useful way to justify our intervention, but it doesn't change the fact that what the Houthis are doing is a relatively standard practice in warfighting. Incidentally, another relatively standard practice in warfighting? Using loaded terminology to paint your enemy's actions in the most barbaric possible light. Which is my point. With these missile strikes, the U.S. is no longer maintaining a support role in this conflict. We are engaged now. I wasn't being glib when I used the example of a bus bomber. One more thing that happens in the course of warfighting? Civilians get hurt. Indeed, since I wrote the first draft of this, Houthi fighters struck a U.S.-owned ship flying under a Marshall Islands flag in the Gulf of Aden. Thankfully, no casualties were reported. A Greek ship en route to Israel was also targeted and suffered minor damage. If you're an American, your president just painted a target on your back. Now, maybe you're okay with that. I'm sure a great many of you are. Some of you would probably quite happily risk your own life to support our Israeli allies if asked. But you weren't asked. None of us were. Maybe you figure that any target on your back is blurry enough that you'll probably be okay, and so will your kids. I hope so. But somebody else's kids might not be. That's why we're all supposed to have a say. That's why no matter how many times an American president bends the rules to take us to war, it should matter. And it's why we should demand every time that it be the last time. And one more very short break before we wrap up with our last segment. Again, if you like what you're hearing, please consider going to Substack and finding my newsletter, which is called Dave's Dispatch, just like the podcast. You can find it at denisonwrites.substack.com. That's Denison, D-E-N-N-I-S-O-N. Thank you so much for listening. Your support means more to me than you know. This final segment is going to be a little bit lighter than the last one, thankfully, and it's going to be on the media panic over book banning, particularly in the state of Florida. So here we go. In an absolute screamer of a headline, Axios reported last week, Florida book bans hit dictionaries. Now, the fine print of the article, by which I mean its text, makes clear that no, in fact, Florida schools are not banning the dictionary, nor is the state of Florida telling them that they have to. One district in Escambia County has pulled 1,600 books for review to ensure that they are in compliance with HB 1069, one of Governor Ron DeSantis's signature pieces of legislation. The law, he says, is meant to give parents more control over what their kids are taught in schools. If you've heard of it, you likely know it by its pejorative moniker. It's the Don't Say Gay bill. Between it and its cousin legislation, SB 266, the Individual Freedom Act, better known as the Stop Woke Act, Ron DeSantis has distinguished himself as one of the more creative and one of the more hardcore opponents of wokery in education. I'd love to dig into both of these bills, and maybe I will in another post. For example, the Don't Say Gay bill gets many things wrong, but it does not actually prohibit teachers from saying gay. But we already have lots to unpack here. Both laws are kind of old news at this point, and their merits are really only tangential to today's discussion, which is the phenomenon of book banning. Is it justified? Is it serious? Is it real? First, the substance of the, they're banning dictionaries, hysteria. They aren't banning dictionaries. Not Ron DeSantis, not his administration, and not Moms for Liberty, who have emerged as something like the foot soldiers in DeSantis's push to de public ed, are trying to ban dictionaries. They aren't. That's not happening. It's hard to tell from Axios's reporting, but trying to read between the lines, I'm thinking that a handful of feisty librarians may have attempted to make a point here and succeeded. Public school librarians skew both liberal and clever, and it's a pretty good bet that they're not wild about HB 1069. If I had to guess, and this is just that, a guess, a handful of them are playing for these headlines by intentionally interpreting Desantis's law in the most ridiculous way possible. Like if your mom yells at you to clean out the fridge and you respond by throwing away all the food in the house. To which I say... Fair enough. The law is both vaguely worded and a total overreach. If Florida educators want to make some mischief by pointing out that governors of American states should not be in the business of deciding which books school kids get to read, fine. Good on them. I love a bit of cheeky civil disobedience. Now it's also possible that I'm totally wrong here, that this is serious and that actually These librarians are planning to erect a giant book bonfire to double as the funeral pyre for literary freedom in America. It would seem that PEN America, an advocacy group dedicated to protecting literary freedom, thinks so. they filed a lawsuit against the district alleging censorship. This is very recent news, there's a lot we don't know right now, and it will be genuinely interesting to see where it all goes. Before we move on, though, we need to acknowledge something. In this context, banning books doesn't actually mean banning them. They aren't being taken off of Amazon, they're not leaving bookstores, and nobody is saying that a student in possession of one of these books should be punished. Ron DeSantis may be heavy-handed, but he's not the Stasi. Consider. If you were a librarian at an elementary school and you decided, for example, that Lolita or even Rainbow Six wasn't an age-appropriate choice for your shelves, would we say that you had banned Vladimir Nabokov or Tom Clancy? I don't think so. We use this hyperbolic terminology because, I don't know, maybe we don't have enough to do. But the point is, No actor in this drama is a 20th-century authoritarian. All we're talking about here is what school kids should be able to access while they are at school. I would rather that reporting on this were more level-headed. And not do things like imply that Florida Republicans are trying to ban the Dictionary and Encyclopedia Britannica. Fun as that may be, it isn't going to fool conservatives in Florida, who know exactly what this dispute is and isn't about. I'm worried though that it might fool gullible liberals into missing an important part of this, which is why HB 1069 became popular enough to pass in the first place. I won't mince words. The bill is bad. Governors have no business doing what HB 1069 tries to do. And it opened the door to too much abuse and chicanery from groups like the aforementioned Moms for Liberty, who, with good reason, felt empowered and validated by its passage. I do not want Ron DeSantis or Moms for Liberty deciding what Florida students can check out from their school libraries, and I don't want anyone who wants them to to have that power either. I want teachers and librarians to do it, which turns out to be part of the problem. Ron DeSantis did not simply wake up one morning and say, I think I'll ban some books today. That's not what happened. And that's not what started this fight. What happened was that a number of districts and individual teachers took hot-button political topics, declared their side the morally correct one, and wrote those views into public school curricula. When pressed, a lot of these educators fell back on human rights defenses, No, they weren't taking a side other than the side of humanity in which LGBT people exist. All races and religions have equal worth, and people should treat one another with respect and decency. And since normie Americans don't really find most of that objectionable, it might have stopped there. But then came libs of TikTok. If you're a liberal... And you've heard of libs of TikTok without ever having explored it for yourself. What you probably know is that it is a dangerous bastion of stochastic terrorism that marshals vast armies of right-wing internet trolls to pepper its subjects with harassment, doxing, and death threats. That may be partly true. But there's no escaping the fact that most of what the X account does is just repost content from hard-left activists and invite its huge following to rage out to it. Chaya Rychik, the conservative activist who runs the site, absolutely has an agenda. She's very open about that. But her content includes less editorializing than just letting extremist weirdos speak for themselves to a massive and massively hostile audience. This tactic really shouldn't be unfamiliar to anyone. Liberals used it against the Tea Party. Conservatives used it against Occupy Wall Street and use it now against groups like BLM and Antifa. Singling out the craziest members of your opposition and painting your whole opposition as being just like them is a sound strategy. And Libs of TikTok employs it to powerful effect. I've been teaching for a long time now, and I've never met an educator who was even a fraction as nuts as the people who appear on that site. But to many in the lives of TikTok audience, that's just what teachers are and what teachers do. And when a member of that audience is, say, the governor of Florida, things can escalate very quickly. One of the effects of this type of activism is to make mountains out of molehills by zeroing in not just on the most ideologically motivated teachers, but on their most ideologically slanted lessons. Especially in the realm of identity and social justice, there's a very familiar vocabulary, one that gets used by most adherents to the movement and that makes them easily identifiable, not just to one another, but to outsiders. A lesson plan that includes terms like inclusivity or privilege or systemic racism, and there might be any number of valid reasons for including those terms in a lesson plan, is going to be an immediate red flag to skeptics. This language acts as a cultural signifier, insofar as it's easy to guess at the politics of anyone using it. And honestly, and here's where the right has a point, If a lesson or unit plan is loaded with a lot of terminology like that, it's probably legitimate to wonder if it hasn't crossed the line into overtly political instruction. Public education is sacred, and so is the prohibition against it offering instruction that could amount to religious or political indoctrination. Children are highly impressionable And when parents entrust them to a professional educator, they are trusting that that educator is going to honor the responsibility they're being given, not abuse it by pumping that kid full of edgy buzzwords and political views that are anathema to mom and dad. Is there a line here? Obviously. Skinhead parents probably object to their kids being taught that all races are fully and equally human. And I don't care. I also don't care, and by the way, libs of TikTok does care about this, when gay teachers are open about the fact that they're gay and open about who their spouses are. That's fine. I'm married. My wife is a teacher at my same school. And there's not a kid there who doesn't know who she is and that she's my wife. Does that mean that these kids know something about my sex life? Come on. But if a lesson includes something like all white people are complicit in racism, that represents, to me, poor judgment. Now, I don't think a lot of K-12 lesson plans include language like that. I'm certainly not aware of any at any school, of which I am aware, but in the social media age, it really only takes one to create a firestorm. And even if it isn't happening a lot, when it does happen, that kind of thing is an overstep. Whether you think the statement in my example is true or not, you must admit that it is a highly controversial idea and one that is subject to heated, ongoing disagreement. It is also, like most of the ideas fashionable among the social justice set, unfalsifiable. You can't prove or disprove it. It, It's not like evolution, which yeah, some parents object to, but for which there is an immense body of solid, easily replicated science to back it up. Liberals are, except maybe in Florida, currently winning the battle over education. The Free Press, also published on Substack, did some reporting that illuminated an interesting but little-talked-about dimension to all this. That it may be mostly progressives who freak out about book banning, but it's conservatives who have more to worry about with regard to viewpoint diversity in schools. Books by conservative thinkers, while not directly banned, are hard to come by in the extreme in public school libraries. It's not that they're forbidden, it just doesn't seem to occur to anyone in these libraries to stock them on shelves. If the problem with banning books is that it denies readers access to ideas, shouldn't we also care about these soft bans? About books that don't get yanked, but only because they were never there in the first place? If not, I sort of have to wonder if our problem is really banning books, or if it's just banning our books. By the way, It is not a good thing that liberals are dominating in this fight, even if you, as I am, are a liberal. Because we shouldn't be fighting the battle over education like this in the first place. Irritating half of the parents who send their kids to public schools cannot help but damage the integrity of public schools. And the counterfactual, what would it look like if the other guys were winning? doesn't require any imagination to consider at all. We've seen what it looks like when conservatives try this stuff. Patriotic education. Gloss over the civil rights era. We won in Vietnam. Reagan was the most transformative president in U.S. history. If you think all that stuff is okay, then by all means, keep playing this game. It may not be for a while, but you're going to end up on the wrong side of it again. But if you don't like the sound of that, then maybe consider how conservative parents feel when their kids come home and start telling them that mom's taco salad is culturally appropriative. All Americans have the right to send their kids to public school, and none of them should have to worry when they do that their trust is being violated by teachers trying to turn their kids into future party members. That's why it's so phenomenally important to be fair, just, and reasonable when deciding what and how to teach. The idea of banning the dictionary is undoubtedly a funny one. But that's not really the crux of this issue. And liberals need to engage here, not just laugh themselves to sleep, secure in the knowledge that they're on the side of good. Look. If Ron DeSantis and his minions are just diet Nazis, who want to ban books because that's what diet Nazis do, then there's no action item. There's no soul-searching or self-reflection called for on the left. Nazis gonna Nazi. But if that's not what's happening, and if DeSantis's crew has an actual point that they're just addressing wrongly, then maybe Democrats in the state could do something to reassure them that there's nothing to fear. Ideally, by actually making sure that there's nothing to fear. We are a bitterly divided country, trying to offer a uniform education for free to our kids. That's hard, important work, and everybody getting involved in the project needs to be serious and solemn about it. The point is to educate children, not train future voters. Conservative parents are not tilting at windmills when they worry about politically motivated instruction seeping into classrooms. However big or small the problem really is, it is not imaginary. And on the left, we should stop acting like it is. If we want to keep public education strong, and in my view, we should, we need to make sure that it is actually for all of us. Okay, that's our show. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Dave's Dispatch podcast. I'm sorry to keep plugging myself like this, but if you like what you heard, or even if you didn't, but you want to do me a solid, I hope you will consider going to denisonwrites.substack.com and signing up to be a subscriber to the Dave's Dispatch newsletter and podcast. There's tons of free material for you. Thank you again for tuning in. I hope you all have a safe and wonderful weekend. I still have no sign-off, but I'm David Dennison. Live long and prosper.